0: supposed to give a speech, right, and I, I, as I was saying before class, I, I kept saying to myself all week, rehearse it, rehearse it, rehearse it, like you tell everybody what to do, but I, I just didn't do it, I was just too tired to rehearse it, so I'm going to have to wing it, so I'll end up forgetting to say what I need to say at the right moment and stuff like that, and There won't be any kind of rehearsed eloquence, but any eloquence, it will be natural eloquence, uh, will occur at the moment, Um and we're just saying that it is, I intended it as a graduation speech, but what it really ought to be like all graduation speeches, they ought to be given to the freshmen who come in, not to the seniors going out, right? And I was saying before that in my old university, there was an institution that still practiced of giving the freshmen a games of education address during orientation week. Um, and it was considered an honor to the professor who was asked to give it, and it taken very seriously, as it should have been, right? The whole idea in that was that if the student is aware of what is being done, that they will be able to participate in it more, in a more informed way, right? Um, of course, when you're dealing with freshmen, you have to let them know one thing, which is that college is in high school. That's really, really the whole purpose of the thing. I mean, when you're dealing with seniors, I don't know what you have to let them know, actually. Because um, in a sense, certain well, I shouldn't say this at the beginning, this isn't part of the speech, but it seems to be spontaneously part of the natural eloquence. Because, in a certain sense, it's already too late. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're already ruined, um, especially in the light of what I was about to start talking about. Anyway, I guess I can start it. Um, a few years ago, one of the students was uh, Mr. Elliott, um, who was, uh, until recently, I the only genius I've ever had to deal with as a student. Um, I've since had a couple of near geniuses, so I can't say it anymore, but Elliot really was a genius. Uh, for self-evident superiority of parts, it was just amazing. And uh, this is when he was 18, mind you, because he went to college at 16, he graduated at 20. Um, uh, and he was a great guy, too, and he was hilariously funny. Uh, so he had everything going for him. of course, most of the students resented his presence. <laughs> uh, but some of them, you know, took it, it as a kind of model that they wanted to aspire to, and he didn't put on any kind of airs. Anyway, uh, he graduated at 20 and he went and got a PhD in philosophy, uh, much against my advice, of course, because I always discourage anyone from going for a PhD in anything. Um, And he's now a professor of philosophy, actually. And when I say he's a professor of philosophy, I mean he's a professor of philosophy. He doesn't pretend (laughs) to be one like I do. He really knows his stuff But anyway, he wrote a dissertation on the virtues. He's a moral, his specialty is moral philosophy. And the uh, the dissertation was on whether you needed virtues or not. It doesn't sound like much of an issue for the rest of us when the answer is obviously, of course we do. But it's it's an issue in philosophy uh, that this dissertation addressed. And the course of the dissertation, he defined one of the virtues in such a way that for a flickering second, I thought I might have possessed it. Um, I'd never heard it defined that way, but, of course, it's a very good definition of it. Uh, And after reading a dissertation, uh, I was with an ex-girlfriend in Chelsea, and I began to hold forth on the virtues and their necessity, and I began to not just define the one that he had defined, but began to redefine all of them in a very impressive way, I thought. And when I was done, I thought, gee, that was pretty good, right? That's pretty brilliant. It must be from Dewey, because it couldn't have come out of my mouth. In fact, it was from Dewey, as it turned out. <laughs> it was from Dewey and partly from Santa Ana, uh, and I will be addressing, I'll be channeling those guys mostly today, a little Cavell, with a contribution of my own at a certain point, which you will notice, because there will be a complete collapse of level, gets to me. Uh, Dewey, in the, uh, in the theory of moral life, where the chapter's called the theory of the moral life and his ethics, does, in fact... Redefine the Greek idea of virtues in a, in a way that is really breathtaking um, and profound. And it was because that suddenly broke into consciousness that I was able to do it. And I'm going to be borrowing most much of my own discussion from Dewey. Uh, but before I begin, though, I'm going to be talking about virtues, okay? And a couple of things have to be said in advance because this word is coming to a kind of disrepute. Um, virtue, virtues, a disrepute. First of all, I'm going to give something like an ethical discourse, uh, and that's a little bit different from the usual kind of thing you hear. In ethics, and this is also from Dewey, ethics we're concerned with with the identity or the reciprocity of character and conduct. Uh, We're concerned with how conduct uh, evinces character and forms character and how character leads to conduct and forms conduct. The two terms are obviously uh, synonymous. They really name the same thing. Um, character grows out of your conduct. You are your conduct, right? At the same time, who you are gives birth to further conduct, which is, which reacts on who you are, and so forth and so on. So, we're concerned with character and conduct. We're not concerned necessarily with consequences. Uh, an ethical discourse is not about how to get ahead in the world. Um, that depends on stuff outside of character and conduct, right? Uh, you can be a very good person and. Not make it. And you can even go further. You can be a very good person in bad circumstances and be killed for it. We know all the time that good people are put to death in tyrannical regimes, right? Uh, but we don't think that they're bad people because they failed, right? We think they're good people because they ethically succeeded and triumphed over their circumstances. Um, I was reading uh, a, some essays by Joseph Brodsky. It's really had nothing to do with it, but it's interesting was a friend of the great Russian poet Amontovov who for most of her life couldn't get published in the Soviet Union right, because she was a sort of a dissident figure um, to be found in possession of one of her poems could send you to the prison camps uh, so she wrote she continued to write poetry and she memorized her own poems and she had seven friends who memorized it too so that in case one of them forgot it they would remember it and that's how her poems for 50 years survived. So she didn't have any literary success <laughs> in the sense of getting published and having a, a country house and being famous or winning a Nobel Prize. But obviously in those circumstances, nothing could have been more heroic than, than the activity of both the poet and her friends. right? And they, they're eternal heroes for that reason. Um, they didn't get any of the world's benefits from it, right? but they got a kind of ethical benefit that can be connected by the world standards. When we're talking about character and conduct, we're really not talking about uh, results. Um, You are of course responsible for the results of your actions, but ethics only deals with the responsibility, not with the results. Um, There's more contingency in life than people usually think, and it's possible to succeed by chance and to fail by chance. right? Um, But the ethical character that you obtain cannot be taken from you by chance events. Character that you obtain uh, that would be demonstrated in your response to chance events, but uh, you're out of your control anyway. So we're dealing principally with character and conduct and you not know, with results. Um, we're also dealing with actions that are voluntary, uh, not involuntary. Right. We all understand that character and conduct are only relevant to the actions that you freely undertake on your own, right? Not when someone has a gun put to your forehead and tells you I have to do something. Uh, we all allow that a person who is uh, forced into something is not fully to be held responsible for their actions, although we also recognize that the person who refuses to buckle under to duress is a kind of moral hero, uh, but we don't expect heroism of everybody, although ideally that would be the way to, the way to act. Um, you know, in the, in the Columbia Drug war days, I guess they're still going on. The drug cartels would go to the judges and say, look, if you go along with us, we'll give you a million dollars. And if we don't, we'll kill your wife and children. That's duress. What do you do? right? That's a tough one. Um, If the person gave in to them, we wouldn't consider them necessarily a bad person because their circumstances are just beyond anybody's countering. And if the person refused to give in to them, we would consider them a very heroic person. Um, but but we're concerned with voluntary actions, not with ones under duress. Although so you see it's not so easy to to draw the line there, really, because there's always a voluntary going along with the duress or Uh But any action that's voluntary is potentially an aspect of character and an aspect of uh, it, as being part of conduct is an aspect of character. Um, if you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, you are unconscientious. It's not that you are a good person who just blew it one time. You become what you do, right? You are what you do. So that any action that you take is potentially ethically significant. You blow off an assignment, you are a slacker, right? You uh, take the benefit of something that you haven't contributed to, like a class. You are that person there's no escaping it. Uh, you are at once uh, identified by your conduct as your character. And although we tend to cut, it, cut ourselves slack in that domain, and one of the mottos of your generation seems to be just this once, right? But if you're giving just this once, you are the kind of person who gives in just this once. It's not, it's not canceled, it becomes part of your character immediately. So any action can be potentially considered part of Means that every action you undertake has to be considered ethically before you undertake it uh, because of the consequences to your character. The basic principle here is you are what you do, and the more you do it, the more you become that thing, right? Uh, and there's no excuses for actions voluntarily undertaken that have made you into a certain kind of person because you made yourself into that kind of person. Right? <coughs> Ethics has its standards, uh, even though sometimes they're relaxed in the case of of duress. So that said, um, there's another thing I have to say before I get on to what these virtues are and why you should possess them and and how you get them. Uh, This word has come into disrepute in America lately, virtue. Uh, It's an old-fashioned word, right? You don't hear people praising each other on their virtues anymore or aspiring to possess a virtue. Uh, it's been co-opted, I suppose, in the old 60s term by the right wing in America, who have identified it with a certain kind of uh, uh, self-denial, right? right? You're virtuous if you say no, right? There was the um, the campaign against drugs where the motto was just say no, right? That was, the, that was it. And for the most part, the puritanical speak in this country has always identified virtue with self-denial. Um, it's a negative thing, right? And in fact, in the 19th century, as you must all know, the term became synonymous with, I hate to say it, I know the way to put it, female chastity. A, a, a woman of easy virtue is a woman who had sex outside of marriage or before marriage. And a woman who preserved her virtue is a woman who preserved her virginity until marriage. Right? So with that kind of pedigree, you can see how the term might be considered disreputable at the moment. Uh, but virtues don't have to do with self-denial uh, they partly they do, but even self-denial is, 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 in a virtuous sense is an act of doing of something. virtues the word is the word for for capacity or for virility, right, it's the same root, and virtues are actually doings, so or capacities, as Cabell's beautiful definition of the Aristotelian idea, capacities and virtue which are able to act in the world, in a world that often... Opposes you, in a world that certainly doesn't give in to your wishes immediately. So these are not to be considered uh, in the puritan sense of self-denial, narrow self-denial, but to be considered as capacities for action, that equip you for act effectively in a world that is usually resistant to your plans. Right. So with that said, I guess I should say what the virtues are, right, and all the rest of it. Um, Well, let's just go with the Greek definition, the Greek four virtues. The Greeks recognized four virtues, and of course, you don't don't really know what they meant by anything, Um, but they were wisdom, uh, justice, courage, and temperance. Those are considered the four cardinal virtues, uh, and I, I don't know what the Greeks meant by it, because... You know, the Greek philosophers tend to get to a point where they say, it is good to be good, or something like that, and you don't really know what they mean, or this is the wisdom of the wise, and like, oh, I don't do I get past that. Um, but Dewey, anyway, uh, did reformulate them in a really beautiful way. And I'm not being 100% accurate here, but I will try to follow them as closely as I can. Um, Humans form plans. That would be a typical Dewey statement, right? Uh, It is natural for people to uh, have ends that they work towards. Everyone has them, right? So the question is, what ends are worth working for? What are the ends that you should posit for yourself? What purposes should you have in life? All right, big question. Wisdom is the capacity to formulate plans that are approvable by reason, approvable to reason. Uh, We all form plans, but wise plans are to be distinguished from Foolish plans or less wise plans are the capacity to uh, determine whether the plan you are formulating is approvable by reason. Well, what plans are approvable by reason, right? Well, Dewey says the ones, the purposes that are most approvable are enduring. Not short term, not easily realized, not immediately realized, but ones that can not only endure, but endure for the whole of your life. A plan that's so formulated that then pursued can unify the whole of life is the wise plan. Uh, Mostly people go wrong in formulating plans that are not enduring. Um, You want to be a designer? That's a good plan. Okay, you're a designer. Now what? Well, I'll go to work and see. That's not a plan anymore. That's drift, as Dewey says, right? Uh, Whenever a person formulates a plan that consists in getting a job of some kind, the plan is not an enduring one because they have the job. And then they wait and see what comes along. That's not wise, right? That's not an enduring plan anymore. Uh, The purpose that endures is the opposite of drift. It's the thing that can unify all your actions throughout the whole of your life. Uh, And such a plan uh, can't be realized simply by the possession of a job. It has to be a conception more than a possession of something. Um, but it's not just enduring for a plan to be wise. I'll come back to this and i shift from Dewey to Santa Ana. It's not just enduring that a plan has to be for because an enduring plan may not enlist all of your faculties. What you want is an inclusive an enduring plan. Inclusive means the capacity to include your entire being in it, to enlist your entire self in suit, not just a partial uh, part of you. The problem with having a job as a, as a plan is that it tends not to take all of you in, right? Uh, you get the job, and then you drift, and it's the weekend, and then you do something else. This doesn't add up to a whole character, right? It adds up to, to what we actually call moral incoherence, because you're different at home than you are at work, right? You pursue different ends on the weekend than you do during the week. That's not an inclusive life, right? It's an incoherent life. Um, you have to have a plan that includes the whole of you and that you can pursue, and this is a good way to put it, I think, you can pursue the whole heart, right? You have to not only formulate the plan, you have to want to continue it and realize it, right? You have to desire its consummation with your whole being in order for it to really you know, function, to, to work as a plan that will cover your whole life. A plan that it, that you can't adopt that way, a plan that you don't have your whole heart in, <laughs> is not the plan for you, right? You have to find the plan that you can endorse with your whole being and pursue for the whole of your life, and then you will have exercised the faculty or the virtue of wisdom. That would be a wise one. In a sense, we all recognize this. We know that the short-term plan is usually an unwise one. Um, you know, uh, what is it? I want to, I don't know, I want, to, I want to go to Paris. <laughs> okay, now you're in Paris, right? No one thinks that's a wise plan, right? Um, I want to go to graduate school. That's not a wise plan either. Um, all those are too short-term to be really wise. I want to be a doctor. That's not a wise plan, right? None of us wait to see what patient walks in the door and I'll practice medicine. The wiser plan would be something like, I want to so treat all of my patients that their life is continuously healthful and continuously improving, that is a longer-term plan. Because it doesn't have any particular end in view. It doesn't end. It's something that you can do for your whole life. The doctor who wants to be a doctor and make money and the doctor who wants to propagate health for his patients throughout the whole of his life are doing the same thing, right? But the character of each is different because of the way they conceive of what they're doing. And we recognize the one uh, having a wise plan, being a wiser one than the other. Uh, And that would go for everything, right? You want to be a fashion designer. Okay, now you're a fashion designer. Well, I'll just wait for the next horrible boss to come along, (laughs) which is really what they're all like. Um, But the person, the the designer who formulates a concept of beauty and wishes to bring it into reality is a very different kind of thing, right? Because beauty is inexhaustible. And that can easily even define the entirety of life. So, that would be what, would, what, what Dewey sort of means by wisdom, but I can't quite endorse that idea. Uh, the problem is that most of you, of course, have already formulated unwise plans <laughs> and are preparing for a life of drift. Uh, well, you know, there's still hope for you, you know, you're still young enough to change your, your plan. And Dewey would say, by the way, that once you formulate such a plan, it doesn't mean you mechanically follow it for the rest of your life. It may be that circumstances so change and you so alter you that your whole heart could be put into a different enterprise, probably a related one because the person's whole heart is going to completely change. But it would be foolish, not wisdom, to stick to one thing that you no longer have your heart in and when something else, that you do have your heart in, it beckons for you. So plans can change, but in each case, the wise one would be the enduring one, the one that potentially can endure for the whole of life. Um, but it's not enough just to formulate an inclusive and enduring plan to pursue it with your whole heart. And this is another Deweyism. People live in reciprocity with each other, right? There's a principle of reciprocity uh, that has to be acknowledged in any plan that you formulate. And this is actually a profound idea of Dewey's. Um, we all exist in reciprocity with each other, no one is self made. Um, even the most self made businessman didn't invent money. He didn't invent the legal system that guarantees his possessions. And he didn't invent the banks. And he didn't invent the courts. And he didn't invent the roads. And he didn't invent the trucks that ship the goods. Uh, if you look at it, he actually invented very little. Um in justice, he gets something, he has to acknowledge that he deserves something. But he doesn't deserve to call himself self-made in the sense that it canceled his obligations. to so the whole network of reciprocities that we all exist in. Um Recognition of the principle of reciprocity is justice. Ignoring it is injustice, right? Uh, And violating it is evil. That's what evil is. And if you begin to look at what evil is in any given case, you'll find that it's always an ignoring of the reciprocity that people have with each other. And if you begin to look for what is disrespectful, you'll always find there's a violation of that, too. Um, I think in terms of, and this is outside of doing now, but Ruskin has some good things to say about this. You have to observe the principle of reciprocity in all of your dealings, obviously. It comes in most of the time in economic dealings. And what Ruskin tells you is just in economic dealings. and I think this is consistent with the rest of these ideas. You should always charge the least for the best work you can do as opposed to charging the most for the worst work you can do, which, as Preston says, is the typical modern approach of these things. Um, And You should always pay the most that you can for any service that's rendered to you, not pay the least. Um, Whenever you see a product like this phone here (laughs) um, that you know can't be offered to you as cheaply as it is unless somebody down the line is getting oppressed, you shouldn't buy it. You should buy the one which where the fair distribution of the profits and the expenses, because those people also were there to make that thing for you, and you owe that in reciprocity. Just uh, for, for their for their actions, and you owe that for everybody who does something for you. Um, but if you think about it, well, we'll come to that in a second. So you also owe and this is this is something to you. owe approbation to. What is just and disapprobation into what is unjust. In other words, you have to be just not only in your dealings and in your economic back and forth, you have to be just in the language you use to describe things too, right? Um, you shouldn't praise what is intrinsically unpraiseworthy. That's an unjust thing to do, right? And you shouldn't overpraise what isn't overpraiseworthy, right? Um, and you shouldn't underpraise it either. If somebody is doing something well or good, you should praise it because that's just dessert. Right? If somebody is doing something ill or poorly, then you should dispraise it because that too is justice. Right? You can't do one without the other. Um, students are always complaining about crits in this school. but when you ask them what's wrong with them, they say nobody talks. Well, why don't you say that that stinks, <laughs> right? Um, some piece of work on the wall that actually does stink. Well, when they ask the student about that, they'll say, well, I don't want anyone to say it about my own work. That in a funny way is injustice because it's a violation of reciprocity. You're in a class. You owe it to the student to praise what's praiseworthy and dispraise what's dispraiseworthy. And you owe it to all the other students not to praise what isn't praiseworthy, which is apparently what the teachers do a great deal that's a case of justice, right? It's giving the thing the do that it deserves, uh, even in just a simple effort of, of a crit. Uh, in general, we tend to overpraise things. We have inherited at the moment, in America anyway, a language where it's impossible to say anything fairly. Everything has to be exaggerated to be heard at all. But ethically speaking, you should be, as uh, just in your language, as you are in your actions and not, uh, and not, participate in a regime of overstatement. That's where it comes down. So if you formulate an end that's enduring and inclusive, it also has to take account of the fact that you exist in reciprocity with others. Uh, And and in the pursuit of it, you have to continuously be aware of uh, the justice or injustice of your actions. Well, so let's say you have a plan that's just well, you we need something else. The world is full of obstacles to the realization of that plan, right? You have to have courage to pursue it, right? What does that mean? This is what I was worried about that when, when I read Mr. Elliott's dissertation. I always thought of courage as being the kind of thing that soldiers possess when they stand in front of a battlefield and shoot, shoot at other people who are shooting at them or what firemen routinely demonstrate by running into burning buildings, which I could never imagine myself doing, or that incredible day in 9-11 when people, some people actually ran towards the World Trade Center to help people while everybody else in the world was running away as fast as they could. I could never imagine myself possessing that kind of courage. Uh, I've never been called on to, to exercise it. Um, but that's not what is meant by courage in the sense of a virtue. Uh, That's admirable and takes courage, there's no question about it, but the kind of courage we're talking about here is the courage to not get discouraged by facing, by coming into obstacles to the plans that you formulate and pursuing your whole heart. It's really something a lot more common than that kind of courage. It's stick. It's not to be discouraged. Putting it across because you've stuck with it and you're not going to give it up or resign at the first moment that it doesn't happen. For the first 10 years, it doesn't happen. For the first 20 years, it doesn't happen. Where people mostly fail in my own field, so to call it, the arts, is on character. They don't have stick. It sometimes takes 20 or 30 years before you finally figure out what the hell you're doing, right? Um, Those great Rothko's weren't made when he was 18. They were made when he was 45. At any point, he could have given up, right? Because he was continuously unhappy with the work he was producing. The same goes for all those guys. They were all in their 40s uh, before they hit the mode that made that made them, before they finally became the artists that they, were, that they were going to be. But at any point, they could have given it up or they could have resigned the, the obligation or they could have gone to something easier. And the reason why they're heroes as artists and as moral characters, as much as artists, is because they stuck it out. And it wasn't just stick, by the way. It was stick in the face of contempt, right, those things look like nothing else that were ever done. And to have the courage to even do them or to display them as art, is already more courage than most of us uh, think we have. So you have to have stick. But, and this is the Pavel idea, I don't know, it might be consistent with the way his life went, It so that's not thing with mine. The world just doesn't have obstacles that you have to overcome by stick. It has opportunities, you have to seize, right? There are opportunities along the way in life courage to seize them rather than just to continue in the same course without seizing them. You have to have, I kept looking for words for this, Uh, you have to have pluck, right? You have to have moxie as well as stick to seize the opportunities that come your way and not to let them slip uh, out of fear of what might happen, Right, which is what most people actually do. Um, So those, those those things would seem to be Uh, sufficient to get a plan across, except there are more obstacles than simply external ones that you have to stick it out through. There are internal obstacles to the success of bringing a plan out. The internal ones require temperance. Now, that's a funny word, because that's another word that sort of lost its currency in in America, anyway. Uh, I guess in the teens, there were temperance societies, and the temperance society meant never touch alcohol. (laughs) Which isn't exactly we think of it temperate. It's extreme, right? It's hardly temperate. Um, and tendency, to, the tendency of the word to mean self denial uh, as, as a negative principle. But temperance is an active principle. The Greeks would have said nothing in excess. Uh, and the question is, what is it that, what, in what direction might you be tempted by excess into excess? And I don't think that anyone here is really going to be tempted by a drug dealer down by the Schoolyard, right? Into becoming a junkie, I, I, well, food, but perhaps by a drug dealer in a club, maybe I don't know. I don't know what goes on now. Um, or you know, I don't think any of you is going to take a drink and then suddenly, like in the old temperance novels, you know, become a raging alcoholic overnight or a drug addict. Like did you ever see the movie Reefer Madness, a horrible anti-marijuana movie from the twenties? Guy takes one toke and he's like a raving maniac. We're not talking about that. I don't think people are tempted to do that. Um, but I think temptation in, in our society, temptation comes across mostly through uh, inordinate desires for something, not inordinate possessions of something. Inordinate desires—people uh, who you know want a lot. You know, when I moved into the building I live in now, I went to the uh, to the unit owners' meeting for the first time, and this building is immaculate. It's paradise. There's an elevator. All right? There's a guy at the door opens it for you. And all people were doing are complaining about the building. I thought, boy, you really expect a lot, right? You expect a huge apartment and constant services. Well, you know that people have that sort of thing. You see you see from architectural digest and other such publications that there are vast places that are ultimately desirable. You look at Travel and Leisure magazine and you see there's a wonderful resort in Bali that has six stars, right? Um, you read automatic what is it? Automobile monthly, I'm making this up now. And you see there's a new Lamborghini, and it's wonderful, and it really is beautiful, and really does deliver what it says it's gonna deliver. And you see it and you want it. Now that's a that's a that's a capitalist reflex, actually. It's part of being under a capitalist regime that we're trained to want what we see. Right? We're always wanting what we see, that's why their product's always thrown at us. But the question for temperance is, is it really desirable? <laughs> Is it really desirable? Now, desirable has two senses. It means both that people do desire it, and also means that it should be desired. And It's in the second sense that I'm using it. Is it really something to be desired? That's the question. Um, and to what order of, of desire is it, does it entitle itself? Uh, the problem is not just having ex- is having excessive desires, but desiring something more than it deserves to be desired. And by Therefore, letting it control your actions so that you take such actions might lead you to their possession. And since the possession of these things is always a matter of money, it's easy to see how someone might deviate from the enduring plan that they set themselves uh, to pursue uh, money in order to get these things. What you need there is to ask yourself, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it or I have to give up to get it? Is it really worth it at all, actually? Uh, This is where the the inflated language of the United States becomes a problem because we hear everything praised in terms that if they really deserve those terms, they would really be desirable, right? If a cupcake were really divine, you might want it, right? But, of course, it isn't divine, and it's it's absurd to think a cupcake is divine. But if somebody says, I really want to try that new bakery, or I really want to stand online at this bakery to get a cronut... That's inordinate, no? Don't you think a little something problem there? Um, and if you really begin to look at it, you find that there's really very little that you do need, um, uh, despite the fact that everything is, is craving your your attention and your and, and your desires for it. Um, temperance says basically austerity. Um, you really don't need very much. Uh, I can't remember which of our authors lately in one of my courses was quoting the Roman stoic philosopher Epictetus as saying, don't make such a big fuss about food, don't make such a big fuss about clothes, to which he would add, don't make such a big fuss about furniture, don't make such a big fuss about space, don't make such a big fuss about anything that isn't worth making a fuss about. And if you look at it that way, there's really very little that deserves the fuss that's made about it. And as a result, you get tempted to pursue things that are not really intrinsically desirable or pursueable, and if you get word off course. Temperance says, value at it its true valuation. Ruskin, in that incredible ending uh, to unto this last, says, seek not greater wealth, but simpler pleasures. And it is a beautiful line, because obviously if you want sophisticated pleasures, you do need greater wealth. But if you want simple pleasures, you need almost nothing at all. <laughs> it really comes down to there is nothing more delicious, as we all know, than a glass of cold water on a hot day. And that's fundamentally free at this point, right? Um, there is no jewel, no, no work of art that, you know, just had an auction up at Sotheby's this week, right? And somebody bought two works of art for $90 million. There's no work of human art that is as delicate as a blade of grass. That's all there is to it. The blade of grass is by orders of magnitude more delicate than anything the human hand or mind has ever produced. There is no gem for sale at, at Tiffany's that is as beautiful as the eyes of the cat. Right? And the eyes of the cat, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> you can have a cat for nothing. Um, and that's really what I think the temperate thing. That's why I say it's closer to austerity than it is to indulgence. It's not abnegation, because these things really aren't worth it, right? It's determining things for their real worth. If they are worth it to you, that's different. But not everybody has those sorts of desires, I and mean, you should not be, you should not allow your own actual desires to be deviated into other people's desires, uh, which is what tends to happen. So those would be, by formulations anyway, and mostly Dewey's of the four virtues. They all go together, because it is justice to value a thing at its real valuation, but it's also temperance to want it at its real valuation, not to have an inordinate desire for it, right? So they, they blend into each other. Um, often doing justice requires courage, real courage, not so much in this society, because we don't have an overwhelmingly evil society, but we know that in lots of societies it does require those things. Um, and of course, wisdom overarches all of them because wisdom is what, it, what makes stick worth sticking and pluck worth plucking and temperance worth following. Uh, and that would be those four virtues. But if you ask me what claims are most worth pursuing, uh, I would have to shift from Dewey to a different philosopher, Santayana, who's also a wise philosopher. And, and here I must say, since I'm being recorded, the fact that Santayana is not recognized as one of the American greats and takes his place in the pantheon of American great writers is an astonishing thing, uh, because Santayana it certainly deserves it. I don't know what greater person or mind would ever be produced in this country than Santayana. And that's that's leaving out what commends him to commends us most the astonishing beauty of the prose, which is endless and continuous. I don't know how he does. It. Anyway, that's just honor, honor Santa, do justice to the reputation of that great man who has somehow fallen out of currency. And I like not understand it. Um, maybe we should try to get a statue. How <laughs> about that? A statue to Santa Ana. And it's a street named after him, like instead of Fifth Avenue, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Anyway, Santa Ana is, it, is it, a, allow me to, I have to say this because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Sandana essentially takes you have an animal body, right? I'm writing this down. And, and we have, in addition, a bond. Right? Um, and these two things are not accidentally related. <laughs> um, the, the animal body evolves into a position where consciousness supervenes, and we are both an animal body and a consciousness. Um, in this scheme, you'll notice there's no soul. Santayana is a materialist. Everything comes out of matter, and mind is simply a different organization of matter. It's true that he, he modifies this materialism as he goes on in his career, uh, but he never loses, he never becomes a supernaturalist. All this is natural. The evolution of the body is by nature, by accident, actually, is what Santayana would say. It's only by accident that this planet spun off from another gaseous cloud and fell into this orbit so it allows water to be liquid so that cells could you know, and all the rest of it, simply by accident. And of course, it could all be wiped away by accident with the next media, right? So he thinks nature really works by accident, not by design or by plan. There's no sense in which mankind is the top of nature or something like that, or the thing for which nature was yearning or coming into, trying to bring into to existence. The uh, and there's no God in this system, right? Um, religion is a human product, and it can be understood in human terms, but it can't be understood in supernatural terms. A memorable phrase, he calls it a supernumerary second physics. If you really believe in the the creation myth in Genesis, you have two physics, one that works and one that doesn't. So get rid of the one that doesn't, then stick to the one that does. Um, That would be rational, by the way. But anyway, at the end of, uh, towards the end of his book, Reason and Religion, he reformulates religious values into natural values, and that too is a breathtaking reformulation. Uh, the one I'm driving at is the second one, but he says piety, which is usually a religious value, is the emotion accompanying your recognition of your animal dependency. That's a beautiful idea. What accounts and sustains what accounts for and sustains your body? That is that to which you owe piety. So, in the first instance, obviously, you should be pious towards your parents because they are, after all, the authors of your being, right? Uh, you should be pious, Santana would say, to your native soil, um, because he really means that, you know, the vegetables were grown in your area and the animals raised gave you sustenance to, to grow and to, and to mature. We would now say that piety is owed to the planet, because once the planet decides not to sustain our animal existence, it's all over. Right? And, of course, piety is what usually tends to be missing in our relations to the planet. Um And it would really be better if every plane tree was regarded as a spirit or a nymph, and every pool had a sylph next to it or something like that. But that's a little bit late to hope for that. But he also redefines spirituality, right? That that term that that has been co-opted by the mushy heads in the world, we talk about having a spiritual side and a very spiritual person. He defines it in contradistinction to worldliness, the worldly person is the person who basically wants what he sees. Uh, again, see a Lamborghini? You want a Lamborghini. You see people with families? You want a family. That would be the kind of thing you would go for. You see someone in a country house enjoying his, as uh, Santa Ana's Grace, his children of his lands, which we never <laughs> say. Um, well, then you want children of lands of your own, right? And that's a worldly ambition and worldliness uh, has its worldly rewards. As he points out, though, it tends, not to, it tends to mitigate or it tends to lessen its own pleasures because it ignores the pleasures of the sense in favor of these other kinds of pleasures. But the spiritual man, all right, or a spiritual person, is the person who makes his life a transparent vehicle for something he hasn't seen, something ideal, something existing only in the mind. Something that exists only in the mind that may be made real and concrete and sensible and real in the, in the narrow sense, but hasn't yet been made that thing. Right? So we might want justice, but universal justice is an ideal. You've never seen it. Right? You've all satisfied hunger, but, but to eliminate hunger would be an ideal end. Right? And the spiritual pursuit of then the person who made their life is sent down as phrase a transparent vehicle for the uh, for the ideal he adopts would be the spiritual person and that's what I would say is the right wise end it's going to sound funny but the wisest end I think is the one that can't be realized uh, either by you in your lifetime or by others maybe even in their lifetime it might take many lifetimes to bring it about. Uh, and therefore, it's naturally enduring because it's not been real, it's not realizable in the scope of one person's efforts. And it may, take, uh, it may take centuries to realize. And that would seem to me to be the wisest end to adopt for yourself. Um, an ideal end, not a, not a material one. Material ones come and go, we all know that. And they're limited in their pleasures and in their, in their rewards. But an ideal end is never, never realizable, really. And if it is realizable, there's always an ideal beyond that ideal end to adopt in, 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 it, in it. You probably won't be around for the realization of any of the ideal ends that you might want to adopt. Um, all those who take centuries, as I said, many of them have already taken centuries. Um, it was a great ideal end for the, for the feminists of the early part of the century to adopt equal rights for women as their ideal end. And they brought it across to an extent. Now there's a goal line beyond it, which extends those rights to everybody, right? To all women, all in all countries. And that's an end that is an ideal one. You won't live to see the realization of that end, right? But if you adopted it, you would have a lifetime enduring and provable end uh, that you might that you could pursue forever. And with your whole heart too, if you're a spiritual person and located your satisfactions in the realm of the ideal. So that's that's what I would push for, actually. It's exactly the opposite of the of Cooper Union here, uh, the Cooper Union School of Design, because everyone here adopts material ends and worldly ends, and the whole goal of the curriculum is material and worldly. But I have found in my own life, anyway, that the ideal ends are the ones that really endure, and the ones that really uh, can be striven for. Selflessly, too. Right? That's the other thing. You make your life, the phrase transparent vehicle for the ideal means you as a person don't Count in it, right? It's the ideal that's in you. You, It's the ideal that you're just a vehicle to carry it to the next generation to take it over, right? You're nothing more than that. You don't make a personal contribution. You make an impersonal contribution, which would seem to be an ideal kind of thing to do. To a certain extent, all the virtues are impersonal. They're not there, although they're personal acquisitions of individuals. They're transpersonal because many people can possess them, right? They're not simply personal possessions in that sense. So that would be where I would tell you to go for, a, for, a, for an approvable end, to an ideal end, if you've been lucky enough to formulate one. Um, there are plenty around, because there are plenty of unrealized yeah. ideas, uh, plenty of things worth living for and dying for, I suppose, which is really what we're talking about. Um, the way to acquire these virtues, by the way, um, is another thing that tends to be lost. If we say somebody is a good person, we tend to think that he was born that way. Right? That's uh, some sort of personality trait. But if it's a virtue, if, if goodness is a result of virtues, then it must be acquirable and not natural traits. It must be potentially in everyone. And the question is, how do you actualize them? Um, when Dewey says humans, he humans, doesn't say humans. I think he might say human beings actually in the ethics. Human beings form men, human beings live in reciprocity, human beings face obstacles. Um, he really means human beings, he means it's a part of human nature to do this, and the and the, the virtues are simply the perfection of the human nature that we already have, right? Um, so the question is, how do you perfect your own natures, or how do you acquire these virtues? The Aristotelian answer is still the best one, by doing that. <laughs> for, the, for Aristotle, the virtue is a habit. Um, if you wanted to use a fancy word, it would be habitus, it's actually a better word. Um, You acquire the habit of wisdom by being wise, and you acquire the habit of justice by being just, and you acquire courage by being courageous, and you acquire temperance by being temperate. There's no other way to do it. You acquire the skill to play the piano by playing the piano. Period. And you acquire, by the way, the vices correlate to these virtues by indulging them. You acquire uh, thoughtlessness, uh, selfishness, cowardice or what's a poltroonery that's even better, pusillanimity, yeah. of being pusillanimous. And you acquire uh, self-indulgence by being self-indulgent. There's no other way you can get those things, right? Uh, you, every time you, in, you indulge in one of these vices, you strengthen its habit and its control over you, and every time you counter it with a virtuous action or a virtuous attitude, you strengthen the virtue in you. Until at a certain point, it becomes your nature to be virtuous. But it's a nature that's acquired you know, by, by these actions. So that's about really all I have to say um, on this subject. Uh, I know it should come, if, if anyone thinks there's any wisdom in this, it's, again, thanks to these philosophers, and probably should have come earlier in your careers and now. But as I say, you're not too old to uh, you know, to lay aside your vices, <laughs> which is really what, really what I really should carry it in that direction, actually. Uh, to lay aside your vices and acquire these virtues. Um, you have to have them all, because one in the absence of the others is going to not work. You can have a wise end, but it's unjust. Uh-oh, that's no good. You can pursue with courage and pluck and temperance, but if it happens to be an unwise end, you haven't accomplished anything particularly good. You could have sense of justice and plenty of pluck and lots of temperance, but never formulate an end. We know there are people like that, actually, who go from one thing to another and never actually settle into anything, right? And they do it wholeheartedly while they do it, but then their heart runs out, and that's the end of it. Um, I suppose, and if you don't have courage, the first obstacle will end your pursuit of the end, right? If you don't have temperance, the first temptation will lure you away from the desired goal. Um, so you need them all, uh, and you shouldn't ignore your animal body, but it's really with the ideals that I would I would tend to push you. Um, do I know anyone who has these virtues? <laughs> well, since I don't know anyone, I don't know. Um, but I know the case that I've induced of the abstract expressionists and, and others people you've heard of as moral heroes probably were moral heroes. You know, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't treat them with uh, with suspicion or disrespect, um, I was trying to think of some examples. I hate to use the cliche ones, but you know Martin Luther King. The speech of Martin Luther King that really counts is not the uh, "I Have a Dream" I Have a Dream speech because if you ever listen to that, pretty tedious till the end. I know, I know, it's sublime at the end, and that counts for something. But the speech he gave just before he was shot, the one where he says, "I have been to the mountaintop." Have you heard that one? "I have been to the mountaintop." Well, Moses never gets into the promised land. I may not get there with you, right? That's the great line. Of course, he didn't get there with him. And the promised land is still somewhat several several cubits away, as the Jews would say. But what he was saying there was, I have an ideal end. and I can die, but the ideal end will continue. All right, and I'm passing it on to you. I may not get there with you, and he didn't. And no one, then people today won't get there either, right? But the end is still an end that approves itself in every way imaginable. And the person who pursues it that way is an admirable person. He really is a hero in these lines, right? Whatever personal vices he might have had. Talk about stick. Talk about pluck. We can hardly put ourselves in the position of these people when they're facing such danger, literally physical danger every minute, right? Or to take Mandela, right? He's in jail for 25 years. He didn't know he was getting out in 25 years. <laughs> Part of the deal, he was there for good, right? But he never wavered, uh, because the ideal end that he posited for himself was commanded his entire existence. Um, and we account him a hero for that reason. So there are heroes all over the place, really, if you look at it. If you ask yourself what it is that you admire in people, you might find, in fact, that it's a, it's a commitment to an ideal end. We all... we if, if, two, if two people were brought in to talk to a Parsons class, and one was Donna Karen, and the other was a guy, a Doctor Without Borders guy who had just returned from the Ebola epidemic. Well, which one would you spontaneously respect more, right? I mean, obviously, but why? Ask yourself why. And the answer would be partly because of the selflessness of it, partly because of the, ideal, the ideality of it, right, and, and the courage of it. And the wisdom of it, and all the other things, and the temperance of it. And the reason why you would spontaneously disrespect the parvenu I don't want to single out Donna Karen. I could have, I had a student a few years ago who was a Steve Jobs idolater. This is the point where I would have bought in Steve Jobs as the, as the person you would, you would spontaneously disrespect, um, as opposed to the doctor. But if you ask yourself why, it would be because they pursue these ideal ends and with the courage and the plot, that that is all that could be asked of any human being. Right? Um, it's always like that, actually. People respect soldiers, and I admit that that's a, that's a trepidatious thing to do. But why is it that soldiers are intrinsically commanding respect? Right. Well, it's because, although you could say they're courageous, right? you could also say it's because they really have adopted an ideal of of officer and gentleman and soldiership that is intrinsically respectable because it's impersonal and ideal and realizable by many people. Now, when they fall short of that ideal, it's a disappointment. You can become cynical about it, and, and probably at least in this day and age, it would probably be the rational response. Um, but the core of it is still admirable because the core of it is still ideal. Right? And I, The real artist, the real artist, um, before it became a socially acceptable arm of the real estate industry, um, The person who devotes their life to bring about a new kind of beauty in the world that they can't even see and that they're risking their whole lives and whether they're going to be able to do it or not is also someone who's intrinsically respectable uh, for that very same reason. So I think if you really examine your own sense of values in this matter, you would discover that it really is a question of virtue and ideality that comes down to what you find out in it. So then the question is, can you appropriate those things for yourself? And this is where I come back to where it began. Yes, <laughs> it has to do with conduct and character. It just is a question of a determination to acquire it uh, and, and then to go and do it. Right? There's nothing external that can prevent you from being a good person, which is sort of what Socrates kind of ends up saying. Right? No harm can befall a good man in this life or the next, leaving the life of the next life out and translating this statement into terms more congenial to our own, it would be that nobody can take your goodness from you. They can take your money, they can take your reputation, they can take your health, they can even take your life, but they can't take your goodness from you. You're the only person who can lose that, um, and you can only lose it by actions of your own and by the way you, the way you take actions. Uh, so I would, I would commend that to you. Um, and it's it's not an, an, an unappropriable ideal. It's something that everybody has within their power to accomplish if they simply try to accomplish it. All right, and that would be my graduation speech without the eloquent end, which I can't come up with. Uh, OK, that's it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, I forgot to say, no, I'm, I'm done. Uh, Okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> I don't know what to do now after that. It's hard not to follow, you know.